0: Welcome to An Economist Goes to College, a podcast about the economics of picking and paying for college. I'm your host, Beth Akers, economist and resident scholar at the American Enterprise Institute. I'm so pleased to have Ron Lieber as my guest today. As you might know, Ron is a personal finance columnist for the New York Times, and you might also have followed his work previously at the Wall Street Journal. He's also the author of multiple books, most recently, The Price You Pay for College. Today, we're gonna talk about just that, And specifically, I want to learn, based on his reporting, what students and their families are getting wrong and what they really can't afford to misunderstand when it comes to picking and paying for college. Ron, I'm so pleased to have you on the show with us today. Welcome.
1: Thank you so much for having me.
0: Absolutely. Now, I just had the privilege of finishing your book over the weekend, and I found myself intensely nodding along, especially as you sort of uncovered the way that college pricing really works. So I think you're really doing a service to aspiring students and their families by getting this information out there. I wanted to note that you write on a big range of topics, and I even noticed that you had a recent piece on the Bed Bath & Beyond coupon right alongside some commentary on food stamps. So given that you have this tremendous range in your portfolio, why did you decide to write about college pricing?
1: There are so many reasons. Beth, it starts for me back when I was in high school. I knew that my family was not going to have enough money for me to go to the schools that I wanted to attend and pay full price. So we had to get educated back in 1988 in Chicago. And We literally knew a guy who knew a guy, and the guy to see in the Chicagoland area was the assistant director of financial aid at Northwestern University, and he had this side hustle going where he would bring in local families at 5.01 p.m. each day through the side door, no joke, of the Mm -hmm. office of financial aid uh, at Northwestern in Evanston. And he would set you straight. And he told us all the secrets of the need-based financial aid system and how it worked and the old school FAF form before FAFSA. And he had it exactly right. Uh, I got into Amherst College early decision. I got a great financial aid package. I graduated with a reasonable amount of student loan debt and paid it back on the normal schedule in 10 years. So in some ways, it's no surprise that I grew up to be the guy whose beat is beating the system for the New York Times. I, I, Mm -hmm. I learned it in high school. There was some space between 1988 and kind of figuring out what I was put on the earth to do, and then even more space to figuring out this book, but it definitely involved becoming a parent. In 2005, I was at the Wall Street Journal back then. I started writing about how to save for college and 529 plans. 2008, 2009, the big recession hits. I start to write more about how to pay for college or how not to pay for college. That was when many of us, at least in journalism, first became aware of the fact that student loans were kind of growing practically exponentially um, and what was happening and the strange uh, stuff that was happening in the 2000s where teenagers were getting private loans without any real limits and, and no co-signers. And then they were coming out of NYU with hundred thousand dollars in undergrad debt and no co and were wondering what to do when they couldn't get a job in 2009. But what really pivoted things for me was about 2014, 2015, 2016, my email each spring started to fill up with ever higher numbers of parents who were saying three different things and asking related sets of questions. First were New York Times type subscribing families, call it you know $200,000 in household income cry them a river, right? Um, But they had gotten to the end of the process and had just assumed that there was going to be financial aid for them. Um, And when there wasn't much need-based aid, they realized that they would made a whole set of promises to their kids about what they would be able and willing to pay for. And they were about to need to break the promise. And they couldn't understand what had happened and they wanted me to fix it for them. And I could not. Right. Number two, whole bunch of families, similar circumstance, were getting offered what has become known as merit aid, these discounts that are often related to your grades and your scores, but sometimes are offered to everybody according to a bizarre formula that nobody understands It differs by school and differs by year and is totally unpredictable in many instances. People were befuddled. Their college counselors hadn't even told them what merit aid was. They were just mystified. And then of course they wanted to know if they could have some more, but it was April 27th, there was not much I could do for them. And then there were people who sort of understood the system But we're aghast at the prices. And they said, Ron, your newspaper can't shut up about the fact that we live in the era of big data now, right? So can you please explain to me why Cornell at full price is $100,000 better than Kenyon College in Ohio, discounted to $200,000 with some of this merit aid stuff, and why Kenyon is $100,000 better than SUNY Binghamton, which is our flagship state university? And I said, you know what? There is no big data set to answer that question. I have no idea what to say to you. And that, moreover, is an entirely new question in the world of personal finance. And we don't get new questions in personal finance very often, especially ones that are that large and that meaningful. And what I realized that I'd spent all this time, like a whole decade, spilling ink in the Wall Street Journal and the New York Times over how to save for college and how to pay for college. And I'd missed the most pressing and unique question of all, which was what to pay for college. That was a value question. And then it was also a values question. And that is my sweet spot. If I have one as a journalist, it became very clear that that values question, I couldn't answer that in one column or five or 10. It was going to take an entire book. And that was how it happened.
0: That's great. You know, I've been working in this field for about a decade now, and I've noticed this shift among consumers, political constituents of wanting to know more about value. So I think there's going to be a natural audience for this book. And I think that a lot of the resent that we're seeing of our higher education system may come from a misunderstanding of exactly what you're talking about. So I think it does a real service. It sounds like you had the benefit in your college shopping and choosing experience of a lot of information. In your experience and through your reporting for this book, what did you find that students and families most often misunderstand about paying for college?
1: Gosh, where to start? They don't stop and define what college is, right? Yeah. Pretty fundamental. This Mm -hmm. isn't a trick question, right? We're not playing philosophy 101 games here. You, You have to define the term. Like, What is the definition of success? How much is enough? And what does college mean to you? And if there are two parents in the household and one kid, you might have three different answers. So you better get that straight before you go shopping. Mm -hmm. The parent or the parents need to get straight with themselves about precisely what their ability to pay is and what their willingness is to pay or to borrow Mm -hmm. and what goal for gap there is between those things. So people don't do that work in many instances. They don't do it early enough. They don't convey the information to their kids. They don't convey the information to their kids early enough. They don't understand that the list price is not the real price in many or maybe even most instances in the United States. They do not understand where the value is, right? Where the pretty deeply discounted, you know, high quality, small liberal arts college experiences or honors colleges or, you know, small and unique colleges and programs within larger universities. People aren't shopping in that way. They aren't thinking about it in that respect. They're thinking way too much about elitism and snobbery and following the flock and what the Facebook sweatshirt Instagram reveal is going to look like. And then they're getting to the end and they are unhappy about what they are paying.
0: Yeah, I think you're right. So I'm an economist by training. So I'm necessarily bad at understanding all this emotional stuff around how people are shopping for college. In the models that I use to think about these things, people are perfectly rational, know exactly what they're looking for and go out and shop and find it. And so it sounds like what you're highlighting is that the process is really bogged down in a big way by emotions. Do you see that as a problem in this
1: market? I see it as an enormous problem, and Beth, I don't believe for a second that you are unaware of this. Uh, I think you're not giving yourself enough credit. Uh, you know what behavioral economics is? My I guess do, is, you I know a hundred times more about it than I do. <laughs> I happen to be a feelings forward financial journalist. If there is anything that I am good at or better at than you know anybody else ply the personal finance trade, it's that. And, you know, if I just recite the equation that sits above all of my work and everything I do, it's money equals feelings. That's Carl Richards, the former sketch guy columnist for the New York Times, who created that equation money equals feelings. It is especially true when we are talking about large amounts of money, opaque systems, and decisions involving family members, particularly our children, right? Mm-hmm. It is a Toxic, I would dare say brew, if toxic is defined in this context as elements that are necessary to cause people to spend the wrong amount of money on the wrong things, right? Mm -hmm. So I went hunting in the years that I lapped America reporting the price you pay for college for the feelings that were governing these decisions and doing so in a way that had the potential to be harmful. And there were three. The first one is fear. Fear that if you get it wrong, your kid is gonna go tumbling down the social class ladder that you have spent years attempting to you know, sort of clamber your way up or decades or generations, right? You've like crossed oceans, you've escaped from slavery. You've like done all this stuff to try to get where you are. And you're worried that one false move as you attempt to like angle the exit, you know, trajectory and velocity of your precious child will screw it all up. Right? People are afraid of that. Then there is guilt. Guilt that you do not earn enough. Guilt that you have not saved enough. Guilt that your willingness to pay or borrow does not match your ability to do so and that your kid will swim into that gap and make you feel lousy, right? Guilt that you weren't in the right school district in the first place. It's you know you, We can send ourselves on so many guilt trips in this process and it's just best to be aware of that. And then there's the snobbery and elitism factor whether it is worrying about what classmates think or about what the neighbors think or what the windshield sticker will look like, Or what is sometimes legitimate, but often overblown consideration of other people's snobbery and elitism, right? If you've got a 17 year old coder on your hands who's like already, you know, sold one startup or is successfully making money, you know, in technology, and what they want to do more than anything else is find their next co founder in their freshman dorm and then, you know, walk across the street to Sand Hill Road and get a bunch of venture capitalist money from name brand venture capitalists. You know, it may be worth spending two hundred thousand dollars more to ship your kid across the bay. You know, to go to Stanford instead of Berkeley. But it's only in you know relatively limited instances with teenagers who are absolutely dead set on a prestige destination where the gatekeepers are snobs and elitists mm-hmm. themselves. You know, where where that is a reasonable choice to make, right? But we get ourselves confused about name brands and what they mean. And- So those are the big three feelings. And I just more than anything else want people to be emotionally honest with themselves so that they can make emotionally intelligent shopping decisions and consumer decisions when it comes to this very large uh, price tagged item.
0: Right, like they'd almost be better off if they were more like those robotic actors in my econ textbooks when they were making these choices, right?
1: (laughs) Well, it's yes, right. But I don't know that it's actually possible. I I don't want to understate the difficulty of making an emotionally intelligent choice because when you're talking about value, you very quickly have to talk about return, right? A return on investment. And there are obvious numerical dollar figure answers to this, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, we know generally that going to college and actually finishing, right? We should always include that caveat going to college and actually finishing is worth on average, you know, about a million bucks, right? Or whatever the latest data says over, over not doing right. it though.
0: 15% rate of return, million dollars yeah. over the course of your lifetime. <laughs>
1: yeah, there you go, right? Yeah, yes. 14, 14% is the number that's anchored in my head. I think it depends on like how long you take to finish maybe. Right,
0: of course, yes.
1: Right, so, so there it is, right? That's, that's a good return, right? Mm-hmm. If you're used to 10% in the stock market over time, historically, you know, 14, 15%, that's awesome. That's a slam dunk. Yeah. But, you know, much depends on what your kid may want to do with their lives. We have no idea what that might be. They can and probably should change their minds more than once. And and that's not, you know, even beginning to try to define the return on having your mind grown and your mind blown, the return on friendship, the return on mentorship, the return on having just like an incredibly Mm -hmm. good time, right? You know, Um, the return on being exposed to new people and new places. You know, these things are hard to put a number on but they absolutely count.
0: So something related to the feelings that we're talking about on kind of the front end of making decisions about college are the feelings that people now are having about student debt. We are in a moment when top policy conversation is about should we have a student loan jubilee? And clearly people are angry about the debts that they've taken on. Do you think that some of the problems with decision-making that you point out in this book are causing this to be true?
1: I don't know. You know, I think it's possible to overstate the extent to which student loans are a real big issue among undergraduates, Mm -hmm. right? So I, I worry about the lower income families or the lower income individuals who borrow money to go to a for profit and then get a degree that isn't worth much or drop out. I worry about the people who borrow a bunch of money, use it to live on, and don't finish their undergraduate degree. I worry to a lesser extent, but I still worry about unhappy attorneys who are not quite gainfully employed and have $300,000 in debt. I worry about the people who are taking $600,000 of debt on to become veterinarians or dentists and what'll happen to us economically when all those folks are paying the debt till they die. I don't worry so much about people who go to college and finish and max out their federal student loans and don't borrow a dime more. Mm -hmm. Um, Those people are going to be all right.
0: Yeah, I agree with you, although that is not a popular position in the current discourse. (laughs) But I'm pleased to hear that you do agree with me on that one. So I want to talk more about the pricing system that you talk about in the book like you really pull back the curtain on the merit aid system, which economists would simply call price discrimination in higher education. And it almost sounds like from the way that it's described in your book, that this system of higher ed pricing is built up more to work against the student than it is to work for them. Do you think that's a fair characterization?
1: Well, that's fascinating. Um... I think it is possible that it works against the students and the families who are ignorant of the process and how it works. But how are we defining worked against in this context? Let me tell you how I define it, which is almost certainly not a PhD level economic definition. The way I define it is I want all of my readers, whether it's in the New York Times or in my books to be of way above average smarts about how systems work and to be way below average in profitability for whoever it is that they're dealing with. I think that's a great goal. And so what does that mean in this context? I do not want my readers to be among the single digit percentage of families paying full price at some very good but not great college or university. And not have known that discounts were available for the asking mm-hmm. of various sorts, right? I don't want my readers to be the readers that, you know, get the $20,000 merit aid discount offer and don't realize that they probably could have gotten $24,000 just for asking and left $16,000 on the table. I don't want my readers to be the people who don't even apply for financial aid or don't even apply to expensive, extremely selective institutions because they don't even realize how much or how generous need-based aid is available. I don't want my readers to be the low-income families that never find out even the basics of how this works or just assume that the only option available to them is community college when in fact, especially if they're first gen, right, you know, completion rates might be way higher at a four-year school, especially at a four-year school that specializes in helping students like them. I don't want my people to be ignorant. I want them to be way smarter than average. And I also want them to be much less profitable to any given school uh, than the average student.
0: Right. I think that would serve them well to be just that. I think you're often dealing with a very highly educated consumer when you're talking to people through either your book or through your column. But more broadly, do you think that aspiring students are too trusting of colleges? Too trusting about what? about what it is that they are delivering to them. My sense is that we've at this point packaged a college degree into the American dream and we've sort of sold institutions as being benevolent. One thing I found striking in your discussion of price setting was that you compared the discount strategies to that of airlines trying to fill their seats. And I don't think most aspiring students and their families would think of it that way.
1: Yeah. So. I am trying to raise an army of consumers who feel a much stronger sense of entitlement to more information about value and about results. And that is not to say that I don't trust these institutions, you know, sort of explicitly, but but here's what I do think. Among many other things that people are not doing as well as they could or should be and it's not their fault when it comes to defining what they intend to extract from the institutions? Like, what are you actually trying to get out of this, right? You know, when I ask this question, I usually hear some version of these three things, right? You're going for the education, you're going for the kinship to find your people, to find your mentors, and you're going for the credential. And the credential can mean any number of things. I have no beef with anybody who's only going for one of those reasons, or is only going for two, or cares way more about the kinship than they do about what they learn or about the credential. The only thing I care about and the only you know shade I wish to cast is on the people who don't ask the question in the first place. You know, Let's say you're going to the University of Indiana and you wanna to go to the Kelly School of Business as an undergrad because you're gonna graduate at 22 and you're gonna to go to work for the enormous family-owned casket company in Southern Indiana. Did you know that Southern Indiana is like the United States capital of casket manufacturing. I did
0: not know that, but I'm even happier now that we had you on today because of this fact.
1: Yeah, so I, I toured one of them years ago when I was at Fast Company Magazine, right? So you're going to work in the casket making trenches and you know you're gonna inherit that business. And what you really want more than anything else out of Kelly School of Business is not a credential because you know you're gonna be hired anyway and it's not, you know, to have your mind grown and your mind blown because you're going to be taught everything that you need to know by your family members and, you know, the executives. What you want more than anything is a network, right? You want a gold-plated group of people on LinkedIn who will know you, be friends with you and essentially like remember you and buy your caskets when the time comes. And so you're going to the flagship state university to join the most social fraternity that you possibly can and to make friends with everybody in the Kelly undergraduate program and to get to know all of the professors and to network the hell out of that experience, right? So, you know, that's fine by me, right? But until you define it for yourself and you say, you know what, I am only going to meet my people and I can do that in Bloomington, I don't need to go to Northwestern for $75,000 a year to do that. Until you define it in that way, you're not really doing it right.
0: Right. I agree with you completely on that one. I don't have any arguments that people should value one thing over another, but I absolutely wish people recognized for themselves more why they were going to college so that they can consider the trade-off that they're making and decide if it's worth it. And it sounds like you're really on the same page there. One of the things I was thinking about when reading the book was kind of wondering how it was received by parents and aspiring students. One of the things you mentioned was that merit aid is really less about merit than we might be led to believe it is. And so if a young person gets a merit scholarship and they're flattered to have gotten one, it's not a great position to be telling them that in fact they shouldn't be so flattered because it's really just about filling seats in some algorithm that a consultant put together behind the scenes, Right. So has there been anyone who didn't receive that message very well?
1: Yeah. So if there are people who are upset that I've burst their bubble about their supposedly meritorious children, they haven't come to me yet, you know, with with pitchfork. Okay. I mean, the fact of the matter is, is that, you know, kind of at the top of the food chain in terms of selectivity, at least at the top of the food chain among schools that do offer merit, many, if not most of those merit offers are going to meritorious students, I mean, if you think about who's getting the, you know, the full ride at Tulane or who's being invited into the USC Honors College, both USC's actually, the uh, University of South Carolina, fascinating strategy to try and attract out-of-state students to their public honors college, University of Southern California, one of the most strategic users of merit aid for the last couple of decades. So both USC's playing that game. So your kids may in fact be, be meritorious and we're very good as parents at diluting ourselves into thinking that our kids are in fact the ones who are getting the real merit aid. So whatever it is that Ron Lieber is talking about in his book doesn't apply to us. Um, <laughs> but there have been some surprising reactions. There's been a lot of fear. I see it bandied about on Twitter and people are like, do I really want to read this? I think I'm happier with my head in the sand, right? <laughs> so there's, you know, there's some of that, right? Just not wanting to deal with reality. I think the thing that surprised me the most though was the anger, a lot of people read this and get mad. Like they can't believe that this is how it works, right? Like Mm, this is really, you know, I've got to learn all this stuff. I've got to do all this stuff. It's not that I don't believe Ron that this is necessary. I'm not mad at Ron. I'm mad at the world that this is how things have worked out. And I hadn't expected that because honestly, I, I don't feel that. And this is my own dysfunction, right? Because I exist to help people work through the world as it exists. And Beth, I think you spend more time thinking about the world as it should be, right? And right. To move us in that direction. Right. And that's just not my jam, right? Mm-hmm. Um, that's just not my job description. But, you know, if you were to back me in a corner and say, does this make any sense? I would be like, no, this would make any sense at all. Right. But, <laughs> you know, I, but maybe, just maybe, if a whole bunch of us learn to beat the system, we just might break it. And then it'll be time for something new.
0: Well, I think that is a fantastic note to end our conversation on today. So Ron, I want to thank you so much for being here. I really enjoyed your book and I hope listeners enjoyed our conversation today. My pleasure. If you enjoyed the conversation and you want to learn more, please subscribe to the show and also check out my new book. It's called Making College Pay and is available right now on Amazon. Have any comments, questions, or topic suggestions for me? It would be great to hear from you. You can send me a note from my website, bethacres.com, and find me on Twitter at DrBethAkers. Thanks for listening and talk to you soon.